Michael Barone is a well-known figure in the world of political commentary, has been for several years. He founded the Almanac of American Politics and co-authored it for many, many years, uh, as well as writing six other books at the same time. His new effort is Mental Maps of the Founders, How Geographic Imagination Guided America's Revolutionary Leaders. That is our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Barone. Well, it's very nice to be with you. Quick, what is a mental map? A mental map. Uh, it's uh, we all carry little mental maps around with us in the he our heads, you know. Um, the, the famous New Yorker cartoon by uh, many many years ago showing uh, the picture of the United States according to a Manhattanite, where there's a huge space between Sixth and Seventh Avenue, and then another huge space between Ninth, Eighth, and Ninth Avenue, and there's a little tiny space between Chicago and Los Angeles. Um, that's a mental map. Uh, we have a sense of geography. Some people have very well-developed senses of geography. Uh, I think I've been blessed with that for many years. I, uh, and some people have almost no sense of it. It's atrophying now, I think, for many people. We get guided uh, by the GPS things when we're driving or conceivably even walking somewhere, uh, and uh, we don't really know uh, anything but what's in our path. And we hear this um, uh, woman with a British accent telling us to turn left, get in the left lane, to exit left on you know, intersection 14B, and we have no idea where this is with relationship to anything else in the world except we're going to get to where we want to get to problem. You're, you're making me feel, remember my childhood in, in the back of uh, the station wagon driving across the country with a, a triptych that had been prepared by AAA for us. That, yes. That, that, that we used to go, that was fun. Maps were, were, were fun. Uh, the triptych was, the triptych was, a, was, was a prepared by a female, by the way, I think, if my experience is in line, because I applied for a job at the AAA in Detroit where I grew up and I was told that I was not eligible for that job because I was not a girl as they said in those days. Uh, there, I, so. I, I, I do remember yeah the, the clerks there at AAA were, were female. I love AAA. I, I still belong to, to AAA and I, I like going in there and, and uh, poking around in, in the office uh, still. So, but we're going back farther. We're going back to Ben Franklin. That's where we begin. You start with Franklin, whose profile uh, includes a couple of real maps that he commissioned in 1746. What was his purpose there? Why did he want, want, want maps? Well, he wanted maps because uh, Benjamin Franklin was curious about everything. and He wanted to explain everything. Uh, you know, when he took ocean... Uh, uh, going ships to England, he discovered and uh, measured the temperature in the Gulf Stream um, because he was curious about whether the water was warmer or hotter and which direction it was going in and so forth. Um, and so he was measuring maps. Uh, he was appealing for colonial unity at that time. Um, remember that the 
American colonies, 13 of which ultimately signed up to become the United States of America, um, were founded at different times uh, uh, by people from different parts of the British Isles with different backgrounds in religious practices and beliefs. And that was a time when the memory of anybody who knew any history was filled with the religious warfare of the 16th and 17th centuries. Religion was the major cause or attributed cause of, of wars in Europe, and they spread to colonial possessions around the world. So um, Franklin, uh, Franklin had the idea that the 13 colonies, uh, and perhaps a few other British colonies, should try to operate as a unit. Uh, in this instance, against the French. The French then had very thinly populated colonial possessions starting in Quebec in the Northeast, uh, pro proceeding via uh, very small numbers of fur trappers and Jesuit priest explorers across the Great Lakes down the Mississippi to New Orleans. The, the French founded Detroit, my hometown, in 1701, New Orleans in 1718. They weren't very thick on the ground, but they surrounded the British colony. Um, and Franklin uh, was interested in colonial unity. Um, the colonies didn't have too much economically to do with each other, except when they were in very close geographical proximity. Uh, their main colonial ties were with England and with possessions in the West Indies, the British possessions that they traded with and other possessions that they kind of traded illegally with. Uh, and so... Um, Franklin really introduces this idea. He's got, he plans, uh, he, he uses a conference with the Indians, a multi-province conference, multi-colony conference in 1754 in Albany, New York, with the Iroquois who were, uh, had their own confederation. And, um, you know, Franklin says if the, in, if the savages could have their own confederation, why can't we, uh, as um, Englishmen, uh, civilized and advanced, have that sort of a relationship? He commissioned a political cartoon uh, showing a snake divided into bits with little abbreviations for each of the colonies there. And the caption was, unite or die. You have to uh, mobilize against the French. And this came out of his experience. Remember, Franklin was a printer. Uh, he set up a print shop in Philadelphia, and he became, um, a, you know, he he became a very successful printer and and writer. He published uh, this Poor Richard's Almanac, which came out uh, every year, and uh, sold it up and down the colonies. He commissioned um, the uh, evangelist. Um, white to to, um, uh, to to preach up and down the colonies and publicize them, even though he wasn't an evangelist. George Whitefield, even though he was not a, a you know a believer in that particular religion, he was a friend of the guy. Uh, he was uniting the colonies commercially. He was one of the richest people in the colonies. He retired at age forty-two in seventeen forty-eight saying that he had enough money to live to pursue learning in other areas. Uh, and so hmm. 
you know, he was always trying. But one of the things that he didn't know, and none of the other colonials knew, the French didn't know it, was the interior of the United States. Uh, you, you know, where were uh, the particular, uh, where did those rivers come from? Um, what were the chains, where, you know, where were the gaps in the chains of mountains, the Appalachian Mountains that yeah. within the 50 to 100 miles of the ocean were blocking off the seaboard colonies from the vast interior of North America. Um, Franklin wanted to know more about this uh, as he wanted to know more about everything. Uh, and uh, he had a few crude works that... Uh, were pretty good about the seaboard, the maps. Uh, one was made by two men in Virginia named Joshua Fry and Peter Jefferson in the early 1750s. Um, Peter Jefferson, that's kind of who's Thomas Jefferson's father. Um, and uh, who went... Well, what, one thing that you, you know, you, you use an interesting term to describe, I guess really the geographical imagination of Franklin, you say he always had a, quote, strategic picture of, of the terrain, of the geography. Strategic, what, what was he thinking strategy-wise? Was it about the French then? Well, he was thinking strategy-wise about defense against the French or offense against the French. He was thinking as well about uh, something that he knew more about than just about anybody else, which was uh, statistics. Uh, in the early uh, 1750s, he prepares a pamphlet, uh, which he doesn't publish for several years, in which he predicts that uh, the North American colonies would have more people than England in a hundred years because of the, re the high birth rate, high survival rate, uh, relatively healthy condition of people. And in fact, that came to be true. He was precisely on target. Um, hmm. he, he's, uh, he's, he's, so he's interested in demography and where are these people going to go? If you're going to go from uh, one and a half or two million people, which Franklin was dealing with circa 1740s and 50s, um, to uh, uh, 40 million or 50 million, which he's envisaging uh, in 100 years, um, there's not going to be room for them right along the seafront. You've got to uh, get a, a, a hinterland uh, for them to be in. And so he's directing attention interior-wise, uh, as well as trying to combine the colonies, which have these different religious and cultural backgrounds um, and so forth. And he's doing this uh, way in advance of anybody else. You, you, you know that during the French and Indian War, he kept trying to tell the English political leaders and the king that uh, England must understand the colonies as stretching all the way to the Mississippi River. It wasn't just an eastern sea river. You've got to understand this, this. That was his mental map. The colonies go all the way deep into the interior. Did they, did they believe that? Well, they didn't take that. I think they didn't take that very seriously. I mean, the fact is that colonial grants had been made uh, by the uh, kings at various times or confirmed by Parliament that went to the Mississippi River. Um, but 
they, they had no practical effect at the time. And, you know, the British were claiming that area as uh, their colonies. The French were encroaching on it and claiming it as their area. The fact is it was, as far as Europeans were concerned, it was mostly a no man's land. There weren't very, very Europeans there. So when uh, you know, George uh, Washington is hired by the uh, Virginia House of uh, Burgesses uh, in 1753, 1754, to go across the Appalachian Mountains to the forks of the Ohio, where the uh, Allegheny and Monongahela rivers meet, and to go up to close to Lake Erie, in what is now Western Pennsylvania. Um, he's going in an area that uh, Virginians, Pennsylvanians, um, had really basically not set foot in. Uh, and in fact, he tells the French general, the, the French uh, commander of the, local, of the fort near Lake Erie, that he has to get out of there because King George II doesn't want him there. Uh, and the Frenchman doesn't take this seriously at all. Uh, <laughs> He doesn't assume that. Um, but uh, Well, Washington, you, you note Washington's trips into the interior as a surveyor, and then that, that little military adventure that, that had yes. a, rather, a rather large consequence. Did this make actually Washington one of the, uh, one of the most knowledgeable of the founders when it comes to the actual state of the interior? Well, I think it does. I mean, it's uh, Washington was hired as a surveyor when he was still a teenager by Lord Fairfax, who was proprietor of this uh, land in Virginia from the Rappahannock to the Potomac Rivers, from Chesapeake Bay to the source of those rivers in what is now Western Maryland and West Virginia. Uh, and I've been up to the, the source of that river there up in the mountains. Uh, the uh, Washington, so he had some experience in the backwoods uh, doing this. He was, you know, he was the second son of a second family. He was, uh, uh, and his father had died when he was 11 years old. He was not particularly a rich man or well positioned, uh, but he got the patronage of Lord Fairfax, the largest landowner, the thing whose whose title went back to 1649, where the teenage king, exiled King Charles II, is selling off titles to lands in North America, which he has no capacity whatever to actually guarantee. Um, hmm. And Washington uh, becomes the beneficiary of this. Uh, Washington had sought a position in the British Army. He at one point sought a position in the Navy, where his brother Lawrence had served. Um, the British didn't take him up on that. Uh, they didn't. Uh, they didn't want colonials in their things. So when the revolution comes, you don't have very many Americans who have had military experience. You don't have very many Americans who had had the frontier experience. And when George Washington appears at the Second Continental Congress in 1775 in the uniform, the buff and blue uniform of the uh, Virginia militia. Um, he's there in a military uniform, not saying very much, as he typically does not. Um, and it's proposed uh, by John Adams of Massachusetts that if we're gonna have a unified uh, revolutionary cause, we have to have a Virginia 
as uh, somebody from the South, from Virginia, from the middle colonies, as he would have thought of it, uh, it join the rebels that were primarily most active in New England. Uh, and there's Washington sitting there in his military uniform, well known for his uh, knowledge and his ability to handle military things, almost unique in it. And uh, hmm. they choose him, uh, much to the consternation of Governor John Hancock of Massachusetts. Well, you, you raise an interesting element in his mental map. Uh, while he's general, his, and including when he's president, uh, Washington kind of downplays the South and, and, and favors the North. Why well, that's, well, that's right. We, we, we think, you know, Washington was a Virginian. He owned slaves. He had a tobacco plantation originally in tobacco. Um, but his geographical odyssey as a young man was always to the north, north by northwest. We used the title of that wonderful movie. Uh, he's going up the Potomac River and going uh, through the Yogiogany and the Monongahela to go to Pittsburgh. He is noticing, among other things, oh, oh they have some really good coal in this area, uh, and so forth. He's foreseeing, in effect, the raw materials that would make this one of America's industrial heartlands a hundred years later. Um, he is, uh, he, he believes that it's important to connect the seaboard colonies with the vast interior. And he's busy buying up land. He buys up his first uh, property, uh, it does, it, acreage in the Shenandoah Valley when he's 19 years old with the money he made surveying for Lord Fairfax. So he's conducting military operations against the French there, not very successfully. He's starting, in effect, what would be the the French and Indian War in North America, the Seven Years' War in Europe, a worldwide war between Britain and France. His name becomes known to King George II as a very young man. He's, uh, he's always going in this trail. He's accumulating by the time of the 1780s huge amounts of acreage, not as vast as Lord Fairfax's, but very substantial amounts of acreage there. Uh, yeah. He's going up there to collect rents from his tenants and from squatters on his land. Um, he, has, he has the idea, as many of people of that generation did, uh, many Americans of accumulating great amounts of land. Uh, and, yeah. he, uh, and, and he achieves that. His idea, and he promotes a canal running parallel to the Potomac River and then over the mountains. Uh, the canal is ultimately built to Cumberland, Maryland, long after his death in the 1820s. Uh, it basically follows the route of some of the first railroads, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, built in 17, 1830, complete in 1830, which, of course, Washington had died in 1799. Um, so he's looking for that connection always. Yeah. He spent very little time south of Virginia, and when he got there, he didn't like it. Yeah, while he was president, you, you, you describe a tour he made of the states. He goes up into New England, and then he goes into the, the deeper south, and he's a little bit shocked by the contrast. What, what did he see? Well, he saw you know active towns and people 
building manufacturing things, uh, being merchants in New England and Connecticut, Massachusetts, and ultimately in Rhode Island when Rhode Island ratifies the Constitution. He had been active in the Revolutionary War. He spent almost all his Revolutionary War in uh, New York, downstate New York, in uh, which he was chased out of New York City, but he spends the Hudson Valley, New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, and so forth. He knew those rich farming areas and the trading cities well, uh, and Philadelphia. Uh, he um, He's kind of shocked when he goes down for the first time to the Carolinas. He's shocked by the uh, ramshackle character of their buildings, the fact that they don't have much in the way of towns, uh, the fact that, uh, and, and by the fact that uh, you've got a population that is mostly slaves. His one trip outside North America in his whole life was with his tubercular brother, Lawrence, going to Barbados, a slave colony east of the Caribbean. He didn't like it. He didn't like those societies where 90% of the human beings there were slaves. Uh, even while he didn't have much doubt about slavery himself in his first uh, 40 to 50 years, um, he didn't like that slave society. And he did not, that was not the future America that he wanted to see. He wanted to see an America of uh, busy people working, improving land, uh, building towns. Uh, building small manufactories and things like that. No. While his geographical imagination, you know, sort sort of moved north northwest, Jefferson, we we get to him. He's your next profile. You say his his geographical imagination was always pointing westward. Uh. Was something I an idea of a Louisiana purchase in his mind many years before it actually happened. Well, we don't know that the, we're not sure that the Louisiana Purchase was in his mind. Certainly, he was thinking about New Orleans. He was thinking about uh, that sort of thing. I mean, the curious thing about Jefferson is that um, he doesn't actually leave his uh, property on the Little Mountain, Monticello, uh, very often or very willingly. And when he's president, um, he likes to recreate the society that he enjoyed when he was a student at William and Mary, where the leading professor at William and Mary would uh, dine with him and the governor of Virginia, the royal governor, uh, Fauquier, and he'd had such wonderful conversations. He obviously charmed them with his wide learning and knowledge, uh, and he charmed people the rest in Monticello and in his White House and his dinners. He would dominate the conversation not along political lines, uh, but along lines of his learning. Uh, he liked to be in situations where he was comfortable, surrounded by people who adored him, and uh, in which he could do his work, learning about science, learning about law, learning about crops, learning about all kinds of things. He wanted to learn. He never went as far west as his father, the surveyor, Peter Jefferson, had gone. Um, hmm. He he never actually traveled west himself, but his eyes were on the west. And when you uh, read his one book, The Notes on Virginia, written in the 1780s and published in a kind of a regular schedule, um, there's it's like his father's map, a version of which is included in the book. Uh, it doesn't have New England. 
uh, it goes up into the middle colonies, it goes up into Pennsylvania and so forth, although he's writing just about Virginia. Uh, he writes about uh, how you could take overland trails from St. Louis to Santa Fe to Mexico City in the notes on Virginia. He's got this idea of going not just to the Mississippi River, but somehow going way beyond it. Um, yeah. And he's got no interest in what was economically the most advanced and revolutionary wise, uh, the most anti-British part of the, the, what became the United States, uh, New England. Uh, he's thinking about the West, and of course he commissions Lewis and Clark, or as he would have said, he commissions Lewis, his neighbor in Albemarle County, Virginia. He doesn't think much about Clark um, to go over the mountains. Uh, Lewis and Clark operate as co-equals in a fascinating way um, to go to the Pacific Ocean and to report back to him on all the flora and fauna. He is very interested in refuting the French uh, naturalist, the Comte de Buffon, who says North American animals and plants are inferior to those in Europe. Jefferson will have none of this, and he, you know, he's constantly begging people to bring him back examples of plants and fossils and things like that so he can prove that North America is not inferior uh, to Europe. If anything, it's superior. So he's got them. You go to Monticello today where they've reconstructed a way that he lived uh, towards the end of his life. You've got all these artifacts of uh, natural history and the Indian societies there. Uh, Jefferson, though, uh, didn't go see them himself firsthand. He sat in his comfortable house, which is all centered around him and his comfort and his library. And it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it, they were brought to him in his house on the Little Mountain. If we compare Jefferson to, to Hamilton, is that sort of rough distinction between uh, Hamilton in favor of certain forms of centralization, Jefferson always wanting decentralization of, of power and even money? Is that, a, is that a fair contrast? Well, I think that's a fair contrast of how their differences worked out politically in the partisan politics that emerged in the first years under the Constitution, the Federalists, whom Hamilton was one, uh, the Republicans as they were under Jefferson. Uh, and there, you know, Jefferson and Hamilton are together in Washington's cabinet. Uh, one of the interesting things I learned in the course of writing this book, Mental Maps of the Founders, was that Washington kept close tabs on Jefferson and Hamilton. He did not pretend that he was as smart or as learned as either one of these two astonishingly learned men was. But he, uh, he, he, uh, he, 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 uh, he, he said we required regular writings, even daily, of what they were up to, and they went to him to get permission, and he, they wrote to him to settle disputes that they had. Uh, so Washington. Um, you know, was thought to be, he wasn't a mental giant. He was obviously a very smart man and a very good judge of character in this case. Hamilton and, and Jefferson could not have come from more different backgrounds in many ways. Jefferson was from a landed family 
uh, in Virginia that were well-established. His mother was a Randolph. And if you look at the history of the early Republic and the late uh, colony of Virginia, they're just laced with Randolphs all over the place. Um, so that's a sort of aristocracy. Uh, he's, uh, at age 14, his father dies. Uh, he has a brother who's apparently mentally incompetent and sisters who didn't inherit much. He became a rich man at age 14. Hmm. And he was able to do basically what he wanted to do the rest of his life. He wanted to study at William & Mary. He wanted to learn about natural history. He wanted to learn about uh, foreign languages. He wanted to learn about music and about architecture. And he worked very hard at it. But, but he was a rich man. He thought, uh, erroneously, as it ultimately turned out, that he was... Uh, you know, absolutely uh, could afford to live and do exactly what he wanted with the books that he wanted shipped from Europe, the wine shipped from France, um, all these He things. had very good taste in wine. He had very good taste in wine. He had good taste in architecture. He had good taste in many things. And of course, his great gift was, the, was his use of the English language. I mean... This is a writer with an apt phrase. You read his letters and so forth. Um, they're, they're beautifully phrased, beautifully written. It's not the uh, sort of uh, style with the subordinate clauses that you get so much of in the 18th century. It's very graceful uh, when in the course of human events and so forth, uh, we, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. That's a pretty good start. Uh, Not bad. Now, yeah. now Hamilton. Hamilton comes from a dreadful background. He's in the in the in the West Indies. His father abandons the family. His mother is uh, is sued for uh, you know bigamy um, by the first husband. It's uh, she dies in bed as he's sitting sick next lying sick next to her. Uh, when he's an early teen, um, you know, he's, it's astonishing. He's, he's, and yet when you read uh, his writing as a young man, when he's in his 20s, he's, he's some, he, he manages to uh, write an account of a hurricane in St. Croix, where he was living, Danish colony. And one of the, he was working for New York-based merchants. They let him run the shop for several months at the time. And he's ordering ship captains around and doing all this when he's something like 15 years old. Uh, he doesn't think it odd that he should be issuing orders. And he does very well. He collects more money than the merchants themselves ever collected from their creditors. Uh, so he's, he's doing well. Uh, he writes this piece about the hurricane and uh, a couple of the merchants there say, well, you know what? We're going to pay his way to New York. And, uh, and so he can get a college education. This young man is really very talented. And they do that. And he leaves St. Croix, and he never returns. And 90% slaves in St. Croix. He never returns to the West Indies. He almost never talks about it to anybody. Uh, he never expressed any desire to see the place ever again. Uh, he was opposed to slavery, having seen it up close and vicious and uh, way in the Caribbean. Um, and as a young aide, he gets a job as a top aide to George Washington um, and is handling correspondence with the Continental Congress, trying to raise money. Um, 
Oh, he's also writing a letter uh, to Robert Morris, the leading um, financier of the revolution, a merchant based in Philadelphia. Uh, he's writing a, something like a 30-page letter to Robert Morris saying how they need to have the national debt and have a national bank and how they're going to float the national debt and at what interest rates and how that compares to the Bank of England. And so, I mean, where did he get all this information? How did he know all this stuff? How did he think through when he's dealing with the, the, the difficult details of military expedition? He's also conceiving a plan which in very large part he carries out as Secretary of the Treasury a dozen years later. Um, very sophisticated, uh, very learned. Uh, it's astonishing. I mean, I made a comparison to the book. He's... Uh, he, I compared him to his uh, almost precise contemporary, born in just about the same year, uh, died young, uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who from an early age showed, you know, immense talent. And Hamilton has that as well. He's, he's uh, just uh, an astonishing character. And uh, he's, uh, well, I'm... and the wonderful biography about him by Ron Chernow, who I'm happy to say I gather has made millions of dollars off the Broadway uh, musical, which adapts the Hamilton story in a creative way, uh, bringing that back to life for Americans. They've kept him on the $10 bill, and uh, nobody could deserve it more. Yeah. The book is Mental Maps of the Founders, How Geographic Imagination Guided America's Revolutionary Leaders. Mr. Baroni, thank you for joining us. Well, very good to be with you.